You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. investigation into the doxing campaign German political leaders suffered continues, and the interior minister promises a transparent inquiry. Attribution remains unsettled, but a lot of people are looking toward Russia. Marriott thinks fewer guests were affected by its Starwood breach than initially feared. Online gamers have been affected by breaches. The Dark Overlord continues to make a pest of itself. And can altcoin production become less of an energy hog? From the CyberWire studios at Datatribe, I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire summary for Monday, January 7th, 2018. Investigation into the doxing campaign against German political figures continues. The magazine Bilt reports that German's BSI intelligence service asked its U.S. counterparts, in NSA especially, to lean on Twitter to isolate and take down accounts involved in distributing the leaked material. Bloomberg says the BSI argued to NSA that some U.S. citizens were also victims of the incident, thus assistance would be in order. Interior Minister Zayhofer has promised transparency in the investigation, with an interim report due out by midweek. Attribution, as one would expect, remains unclear. Speculation centers for now on either a right-wing party that was largely unaffected by the incident or on Russian information operators. Trend Micro has pointed the finger toward Russia's Pondstorm group, and the amount of patient preparation that seems to have gone into the attack is more often seen in intelligence services than partisan operators. As Herr Zehofer has promised, we should know more later this week. It's worth noting again that the material released so far doesn't appear to contain much, if anything, that's either shocking or particularly discreditable. On Friday, Marriott released more results of investigation into its Starwood Reservation Systems breach. The good news is that fewer customers than feared were affected. The bad news is that the compromised data include a lot of unencrypted passport information. Marriott had initially believed that the number of guests affected was around 500 million. The hospitality company now regards 383 million as the upper limit and believes with a fair degree of certainty that the actual number is lower still. But the hackers accessed five and a quarter million unencrypted and more than 20 million encrypted passport numbers. Roughly 8.6 million encrypted pay cards were also exposed in the incident. Marriott doesn't believe the attackers got the master encryption keys. In 2012, a public-private partnership was formed between NIST, industry stakeholders, the state of Maryland, and Montgomery County in Maryland, to launch the National Cybersecurity Center of Excellence, the NCCOE, with the mission to build and publicly share solutions to cybersecurity problems 
faced by U.S. businesses. Joining us today are Karen Waltermeyer and Harry Perper, both cybersecurity engineers at NIST and the NCCOE. We are an applied group that takes next-generation standards, technologies that you can commercially buy, and apply those in the best way possible for the fastest way to adopt secure technologies. And we're really looking at this from a business perspective, not just a federal government perspective. It's a public-private partnership. So what we do here being so transparent is we, we provide guidance and solutions that could fit all sectors of industry, small, medium, and large-sized businesses, as well as the federal government and our partners. What is the, the type of engagement that you get from the private sector? Do they provide financial support? Are you working with them to hand-in-hand uh, to, hand to solve problems together? We work hand-in-hand hand with uh, industry, executives, and thought leaders, also vendors and integrators, but it's all considered in-kind. There is no membership. There is no fee. Again, we're a federal agency and a group within a federal agency. So the, the work and the collaboration that we do is on a voluntary basis. And it is bound by a, an agreement that is called a Cooperative and Research Development Agreement, a CRADA. Now, can you give me uh, some examples of some of the types of uh, things that you're working on? Through discussions with commercial industry, we've identified a number of projects. I've been working in the finance sector, so the three projects that we've identified and worked on so far there is address IT asset management, identity and access management, and most recently, we published a practice guide on privileged account management. We identify those problems or issues to address through conversations with uh, thought leaders and organizations in the commercial space, primarily the critical infrastructure sectors of the economy. So we agree on a reference architecture that's practical for implementation, and then we get vendors to volunteer their products and services to help us build a proof of concept of that reference architecture here in our lab, where we have our cybersecurity engineers along with the vendors work hand in hand to build an example of an operating example of that reference architecture that we test, we do functional testing. Um, again, we are not recommending those products in our practice guides. We state that they worked in the way we used them. They provided the capability that we state in the practice guide. Um, once we build that proof of concept, then we, then we know this works. Um, we create the practice guide, and the practice guide includes a description of the reference architecture, the theory of operation of that architecture, a mapping to the cybersecurity framework uh, to help organizations that use the CSF to um, organize their cybersecurity program. Um, we also include documentation of that proof of concept, step-by-step -step instructions if somebody wanted to try to recreate what we built in the lab. Um, for the most part, I don't expect people to recreate, but it does give them a starting point for their own implementation. It gives them an understanding of the kinds of skills that they need. And that practice guide is published publicly at nccoe.nist.gov. At that point, once it's published, we advocate in different ways, including podcasts, other interviews, speaking engagements around the country to get people to know that these exist and that there are great ideas in, within them that they can use to help improve the way they do that particular uh, area of cybersecurity. Privilege account management happens to be the most recent one that we published. 
another area of adoption for us is where we interact with vendors and they make changes to their product generally to either improve the integration and the, the way their product is compatible with standards or making more user-friendly or in, in some cases maybe more secure. So uh, an example of that is our wireless infusion pump project that we did for the healthcare industry where we believe that the next generation of wireless infusion pumps will be more secure because of the work we did here in conjunction with those manufacturers. Our thanks to Karen Waltermeyer and Harry Perper from NIST for joining us. You can learn more about the National Cybersecurity Center of Excellence by visiting nccoe.nist.gov. The breach at Town of Salem, the role-playing game, not the Massachusetts city, affected around 7.6 million players. As reported by HackRead, the data exposed include username, IP address, email ID, and hashed password. Blank Media Games, the proprietor of Town of Salem, says they don't handle money, so no pay card or bank data were exposed. The Dark Overlord, the gang that's trading in 9-11 insurance claims and suggesting conspiracy theories about the terror attacks, has continued to tease and dribble out stolen files on Steemit, the same blockchain-based platform used for, by example, the Shadow Brokers. The motive is purely financial. The Dark Overlord crassly self-describes its greed for Bitcoin and disclaims any high-hacktivist purpose. They've apparently received a few thousand bucks from misguided crowdfunders. So, this blockchain thing. Have you heard of it? These bitcoins the Dark Overlord and the other kids are all talking about? Here's something we've wondered about for a long time. You mine this stuff, right? It's like free money, right? Not much money, maybe, if you're just using your phone. But mining bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies takes computational resources and those use electrical power. Sure, we're all used to turning our devices on, leaving them on, charging them up, and so on. Still, does power consumption place limits on altcoin and those who love it? There was that school principal in China who was sent up the river when municipal authorities wondered what was up with all that electricity being used at the school during off hours. They investigated and found that the enterprising gentleman had plugged a coin mining rig into his school, and was accumulating Bitcoin on the city's dime. True story. Well, he went too far, but surely there's no problem with a little mining, no? Maybe yes. Our baby boomer desk reminds us of a public service ad that ran on New York TV back in the mid-1960s. What's one little snowflake, the ad asked, and it answered, nothing, but put enough of them together, and you've got a blizzard. Or what's one little grasshopper? Nothing, but put enough of them together, and you've got a plague. And what's one little piece of litter? Nothing, but put enough of them together, and you've got a dirty city. So too with Bitcoin. Testimony before the U.S. Senate Committee on Energy and Natural Resources this past August estimated that Bitcoin mining accounted for about 1% of the world's energy consumption. Last May, a study published in the magazine Joule looked at coin mining and concluded that solving for cryptocurrency was then consuming at least 2.5 gigawatts of power, a little shy of what Ireland uses. And the researchers speculated that consumption would exceed 7.5 gigawatts, or nearly Austrian levels, by the end of 2018. So that's a lot, right? 
Wouldn't this mean that the cryptocurrency world was self-limiting? I mean, we need power for other things, right? What good do all these profits do if someone ends up with a huge stack of altcoin and winds up sitting in the cold dark with the rest of us? And the rest of us would be a pretty tough crowd, we think. Anywho, power consumption seems to be a bit down. Some of the drop is market-driven. As Bitcoin's price crashed over the past year, speculators have turned to other more attractive plays, probably like state lottery scratch-off cards, consumer debt portfolios, and so on. But there are also some technical responses, maybe, in the offing. IEEE Spectrum reports that Ethereum, the smaller but still significant alternative to Bitcoin, its power consumption is about a fourth that of Bitcoins at roughly Icelandic levels, well, they're working to overhaul code to cut the electricity needed to mine Ether. Roughly speaking, the change will involve a shift from proof-of-work to proof-of-stake, an alternative approach to distributed consensus that the Ethereum Foundation thinks could cut power use by a hundredfold by randomly assigning computation to one processor as opposed to an indefinitely large number of competing processors. Proof-of-stake validators, not miners note, but validators, would put up collateral in the form of ether. The more ether, the more likely you are to be chosen. And if you're caught cheating, you've got more to lose. So good luck. Returning to New York a half-century ago, we're sad to say that the boomer desk remembers it as a pretty dirty city, despite the PSA's best efforts. Lots of bad behavior, too. True story. One member of the desk recalls that a kid brother had an elephant in the Central Park Zoo steal his deputy dog lunchbox during a field trip to get at the peanut butter and jelly sandwich mom had packed for his sustenance. Sad. Managing the requirements for modern security programs is increasingly challenging and time-consuming. Enter Vanta. Vanta gives you one place to centralize and scale your security program, quickly assess risk, streamline security reviews, and automate compliance for ISO 27001, SOC 2, and more. You can leverage Vanta's market-leading trust management platform to unify risk management and secure the trust of your customers. Plus, use Vanta AI to save time when completing security questionnaires. CyberWire daily listeners can get $1,000 off by going to vanta.com slash cyber. That's V-A-N-T-A dot com slash cyber. In the dynamic world of enterprise security, identity architects and IT leaders face a major challenge. Growth by repeated acquisitions multiplies the complexity of everything. Multiple IDPs, MFA providers, policy engines that all need to coexist. This can lead to fragmented user identities and policies that create security vulnerabilities and add access friction. Strata Identity solves this. Now you can decommission unneeded IDPs and consolidate the ones you'd like to keep without rewriting apps or disrupting users, engineers, and app owners. Plus, Strata's modular architecture makes it easy to integrate with any identity provider without manual maintenance and coding. Join the ranks of cybersecurity leaders using identity orchestration, 
Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your top identity security priorities, and receive a pair of complimentary AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations with over 5,000 employees. Step into a new era of identity management at strata.io slash cyberwire. And joining me once again is Professor Awais Rashid. He's a professor of cybersecurity at University of Bristol. Awais, welcome back. Um, Today we wanted to touch on some of the challenges when it comes to securing large-scale infrastructures. What can you share with us today? Our critical infrastructures on which our society relies, such as uh, uh, water, power, transportation, digital healthcare, um, energy generation and distribution, they are becoming increasingly connected. And we are through, for example, industrial Internet of Things uh, uh, devices and so on, and connecting these systems also to enterprise systems, we are increasing this connectivity all the time. And that has great business benefits, but it also means that the size and interconnectedness of these infrastructures uh, make security a very challenging problem. So I'll give you one example. Uh, for instance, as we roll out many smart devices, including, th- say, for example, smart refrigeration across wide areas, then the scale of attacks can be very large. An attacker can potentially compromise uh, smart refrigeration across a whole area and hence overload the power grid. And you can imagine that the impact of attacks are uh, considerably larger as well. Disruption to a, a large population and uh, massive business losses. Yeah, I've seen stories come by recently about uh, potential problems with, uh, for example, hot water heaters, you know, devices that require a large amount of energy. And if you could uh, spin up some sort of botnet to trigger them simultaneously, well, that could cause some trouble in the grid. Absolutely. And I think this is really where the, where the challenge comes, because there is good business reasons to not isolate these systems from the rest of the environment in the first instance. But we need to have more systematic ways of uh, having security assurances about their behavior. And I will go even further and say we need to have more resilience assurances about their behavior. So in Nigeria, in any world, you do not want your, uh, you do not want to have to take your power grid offline because there is an attack going on. What you want to do is you want the power grid to be able to respond to it gracefully and maintain perhaps uh, its operation at somewhat reduced capacity and then recover very, very gracefully. And I think this is really where um, I would say the the frontier lies at the moment for cybersecurity, because while we create these massively connected infrastructures from which we derive great value and they end up in our society, we also have to think about as to this is not a case of these infrastructures being compromised and then being unavailable. They have to be able to be resilient in an increasingly adversarial world where secure and insecure devices and systems interact. The attack does not necessarily need to lead to a um, massive data breach or even a massive disruption of service. It can just just be what you would call a nuisance attack. But that does not mean that it does not create a huge cost to the uh, organization that operates the system uh, or the infrastructure and also those who are charged with maintaining and defending the infrastructure. And ultimately, um, people who work on game theoretic notions of security, they, they, they would say, you know, this is ultimately a game theoretic problem as to how do you, uh, the attacker wants to, you know, increase the cost to the defenders and the defenders, of course, want to minimize their cost, but increase the cost to the attackers. And here I go back to this this point that we need to have more more resilient systems who can actually withstand these kind of issues and gracefully recover 
Professor Awais Rashid, thanks for joining us. And that's the Cyberwire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. And for professionals and cybersecurity leaders who want to stay abreast of this rapidly evolving field, sign up for Cyberwire Pro. It'll save you time and keep you informed. Listen for us on your Alexa smart speaker, too. The Cyberwire podcast is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our amazing Cyberwire team is Elliot Peltzman, Peru Prakash, Stefan Vaziri, Kelsey Vaughn, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Vilecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Iben, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow. Tomorrow.